Well, good morning, everybody. All right. If you weren't here for the announcements this morning, again, we want to say a special welcome to you. I know we had some people trickling in. And my name is Andy Hermanson. I'm the discipleship coordinator here at uh, Lutheran Church of Hope, Des Moines campus. And today's just a great day, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. So I want to start this morning, though. After you watch a video like that, I feel like you've got to start with the show of hands. Uh, how many of you on your way to church this morning, that was your experience as you were driving to church this morning? You felt like maybe you were riding with a crazy driver, you know, you're like, ah, get me out of here, right? All right, okay, maybe hands down. How many of you wish that you had that experience riding with Jeff Gordon on your way to church this morning? Absolutely. Yeah, when we look at a video like that, I mean, it looks like a really fun prank, doesn't it? I would love to do that to somebody, just to be given a car and all of a sudden I get all this, uh, this driving ability and I just get to push somebody. And to be honest with you, I had to edit about half that video out because they pushed that guy so far that he just starts swearing and they take the car off a loading dock and all that. I mean, it's crazy. Maybe they went a little too far. But, but the thing is, we look at a prank like that and we, we think it's hilarious, right? Ha <laughs> ha, funny, 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 you know? I'm pretty sure Steve didn't enjoy it so much. Right? Because as we're sitting in our seats and as we're, uh, we're looking at this video and we've got this clear understanding that we know who's behind the wheel. I mean, it's one of the winningest, most skilled NASCAR drivers of all time. His name is Jeff Gordon. He's won mo- the most championships of anybody in the modern NASCAR era. I mean, the guy, he kind of knows what he's doing, right? So we know that. And it's funny. But if you're Steve, if you're that poor used car salesman, I mean, do you... Th- Do you think he had a clue that that was about to happen to him? Absolutely not. And it had to have been the ride of his life. I'm pretty sure he's never going to forget that, right? But I I love even how Jeff is, he's kind of acting it out and he begins kind of, he plays the part really well. He's like inching in. He's like, oh, I've never driven a car like this. I just drive a minivan. And then all of a sudden this rush. And I got to think, as Jeff pounds the, the throttle as he puts the pedal to the metal as he, as he does for a living often and just rips around that parking lot. And by the way, as he ends it, he does like this sweet 180 and as the wheels are swinging around, he clicks it in reverse and like slowly like two miles an hour backs it back into the parking spot. So <laughs> it, just, it was just unbelievable. And of course the guy gets out and he's starting to call the cops and he's like, hey, I'm Jeff Gordon and it's all good. But, but I got to believe as they're on that journey together, I mean, Steve, this poor used car salesman, he's got to be asking a, a question. Well, maybe a couple questions. The first one would actually probably be, am I about to die, right? But the second question he's got to be is, who is this guy, right? I mean, this guy shows up out of nowhere, and he comes and he drives a minivan, and, you know, maybe the guy that is trying to put the camera on the car, and he, I mean, whenever you see anybody running away from the scene or something, like with their hand, like, like they're innocent, you know something is up. But, but he's got to be asking this question, who is this guy? Maybe more importantly, who does this guy think he is? Right? I mean, the nerve of some people, and I'm glad the guy took it well enough, I mean, to even sign the release to release the video to YouTube. I mean, I don't know if I'd want people seeing me in that uncomfortable of a position. But he's got to be asking the question, and only when the question is answered do things return back to normal? He's got to think, who is this guy? And as he tells him who he is, he begins to calm down a little bit. It's a great question. And if I were in Steve's shoes, I would want to know the answer to that question. Now, it's a question that's been following Jesus around as well. And we've been talking about that the last few weeks. In fact, we've got these banners up here where Jesus is asking people, who do you say that I am? And uh, 
as the, Jesus is doing this, I mean, these past few weeks, as, as we've been talking about this and we've made the jump now from the Old Testament to the New Testament, I mean, it's this question is, seems to be on everybody's mind. They're asking, who is this Jesus guy? Because Jesus has been on the move, just as God is on the move today. Amen? He's been on the move. I mean, he's calmed some stormy seas. And after that, what do the disciples ask? They say, who is this that the wind and the waves obey him? Right? He's managed to ruin a little girl's funeral by bringing her back from the dead. Who is this guy that has more authority even over death? And he's fed a couple thousand people with some kid's sack lunch. And he just didn't just feed a few thousand people, but he had leftovers. Who is this guy that can turn something little into something amazing? It's a question. And if you've been following Jesus at all, I mean, if you're there in the first century and you begin to see the crowds that follow him, it only takes about two seconds to realize that this is not your ordinary run-of-the-mill Jewish rabbi. There is something about this guy, and everybody wants to know, who is this Jesus guy? So a lot of people have been asking this question, and just as John opened up uh, last week with, this, with Jesus asking this to his disciples. I, w- I want to start there this morning as well. So if you have your story Bible, I want you to turn to the beginning of chapter 25, and it's page 353. And if you're in the Abundant Life Bible, uh, we're going to start in Mark 8. And just a, a note up front, if you're reading the Abundant Life Bible this morning, uh, we're going to be jumping all over the place. So there will be times where I'm just going to read, and it may say something similar, but even in, as we go through a couple of these stories, all four of the Gospels uh, are going to be included as we go through this. So it's going to kind of jump around if you're following in the Abundant Life Bible, right? But Jesus is asking his disciples uh, this question, and he decides that it's time uh, to put the question to them. So starting at the beginning of, ver- of chapter 25, or Mark 8, verse 27, it says, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? They replied, and and they're going to give some answers here. And the thing is, you have to understand, if you are in Jesus' day and you know that you're in a town of Caesarea Philippi, you have to understand something about that area. That town was known for, for literally, well, not literally, but being the Costco right, of world religions. Like you could walk down the street, and and by the Costco, I mean that they had everything you needed and then some. One of those stores, you know, where you just load up on stuff. It was an all-you-can-eat buffet of religious opportunities, right? You want to worship this God? We'll come over here. If you want to do this, come over here. And Jesus is standing in the middle of that, and he asks this question, who do people say that I am? And so it makes sense then when they follow up with this answer. It says, they replied, some say John the Baptist." Others say Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. And as Jesus is using this, he realizes that he's got an opportunity to teach. And so he wants to take the question, not just from some abstract question, what are other people saying? But he wants to go to them, just as he wants to come to us this morning, and he asks this question. But what about you? What about you guys? Who do you say that I am? And Peter being the bold one of the group, or maybe the one that's quick to think, or well, quick to speak, and then thinks later, he says, it says that Peter answered, you are the Messiah. So he's got the correct answer. He gives it right, but Jesus realizing again that there's a chance to teach even further, he wants to test, and he kind of wants to see uh, where Peter is at. So, so he begins to push it forward, because Peter's got the right answer, but Jesus wants to make sure that 
that he fully understands what it means. And so continuing on in verse 31, he says, he then began to teach them that the Son of Man, and that's another name for Jesus, that Jesus must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and after three days, rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And that's always a good idea, right? I mean, if you're the low guy on the totem pole, you're the one that maybe is, is still learning a little bit, you know, you, you go up to the master and you say, hey, you know, I know you're in charge, but I just, I think maybe you ought to rethink what you just said, right? That's, that's never going to end well. And in fact, this is where it gets ugly for Peter. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, and he doesn't just look at Peter, but he looks at all of the disciples, and he singles Peter out, and he says, you know, very comforting words. He says, get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely these human concerns. So Peter has opened his mouth, and it seems like he's gotten the answer right to the question, but as Jesus presses further, you just, you kind of feel bad for him, don't you? It's like, he just, just can't seem to get it right. Because he's got the right answer. But the thing is, he has no clue what it means. He's got this answer. He understands that Jesus is the Messiah, and he's got this idea that, that he's coming back. But as we've been talking, and we've spent a lot of weeks in the Old Testament, uh, going all the way back to September, we've been looking at this idea of, of Israel and God's people. And if we know anything about God's people, it's that they like to do it their way, right? Peter doesn't have the full picture with Jesus because he's coming from this mindset that, that as God's people, they like to do it their own way. And we've seen that when we talked about the Exodus, when they were in Egypt, when they were in slavery. They didn't want to be in slavery, so they begged God, God, come get us out, right? And so God comes and does. And as they're walking through the desert and they're starving and they wish they could even just go back to slavery because it was more cushy, and more comfortable, they say, God, feed us. And so he does. Because again, it's all about them and, and how they feel. And, and as their nation is emerging, as Israel is becoming this nation on the world stage, they say, God, give us a king. Give us an army. Give us a power that will conquer all of these other nations. And so that's the narrative that's carrying forward here as Peter is answering these questions He's got this idea, not that this Messiah is this person that's going to go and die like Jesus is saying. But the Messiah is this one that's going to come and it's going to take care of the business of the day. No longer are those same nations ruling over God's people, but instead it's a new nation. It's the Roman nation. A whole empire is raining down on this group of people and all that these people want more than anything else is for God to come and rescue them. And so that's their understanding of the Messiah. And so it makes sense. I mean, Peter kind of has the right answer, but at the same time as you push further into it, he just, he just has no idea what Jesus is really about. So he's making progress, but, but he doesn't have the bigger picture. It's almost as if Jesus has, or uh, Peter has this box Right? And in this box, he's got this idea of who God is. It's this concept. Everything that he knows about Jesus, every experience they've had, everything that they've taught, right? All the things that they've learned, they all fit into this box. And at some point, we have to have something to carry around our ideas, right? We have to have in our minds this picture 
of God, this understanding. I mean, maybe you think God is this really nice, loving Father. Maybe that's not a great example based on your life ex- experiences. I mean, maybe in your box you carry around this idea that God's angry all the time. Right? Well, Peter's got this box, and at some point boxes are super helpful, right? Because we can carry lots of stuff in boxes, and we can kind of keep it organized and collected, and it kind of helps us move forward efficiently, right? Boxes are great until you need a bigger box, right? And so as they're going through, we, have, we all have this box, and, and what's happening here is Jesus is saying, Peter, you've got the right box. You picked up the Messiah box. That's good. That fits in. But now I want to bring in this next thing, and, and this box, this box it, it needs to stretch a little bit. And eventually we all need a bigger box, right? So this morning I asked you during offering on the question, Jesus is, and fill in the blank, what was the first word that came to your mind? Whatever that was, whatever that was, that tells you what kind of box you're holding. It's the answer that we have for Jesus, boxes are great until they, need to be, until they need to be bigger. Until you're trying to move and you're trying to figure out, how do I get all of these things? How do I get all my clothes into this box? And then the boxes begin to bulge and then they begin to break. And it's almost like as Peter and Jesus are having this conversation, it's almost like Jesus is saying to Peter, you need a bigger box. You need to just stretch it out a little bit. All right? We need to try something to fit something that's bigger than our current box inside of that same box. And so we need to stretch a little bit. And here's the thing, stretching can be a painful experience. I mean, anybody ever had that example where you just, you just wish that you were maybe just a little bit more flexible? I can just remember uh, stretching. I mean, it's kind of a good thing, right? Well, let's do this. Why don't everybody stand up for a second? Let's just do a little stretch. Because I've got to tell you, the end of this sermon is going to be really crazy, and I don't want anybody to pull a hamstring, Okay. All right? I don't want anybody to get injured, and I don't want it to be my fault because I didn't tell you. So I just told you you got to stretch, all right? All right, everybody, let's do this. Put your arm across there, right? Absolutely. Now lean to the other way, all right? All right, now reach down to the floor and get a good stretch, right? It feels good, doesn't it? Right. All right, you guys can sit down. Good job, good job. All right, but here's the thing. Stretching can be painful too, right? Like I was in high school. I was in ninth grade or tenth grade or something like that, and I'm supposed to be in my prime and they had us do this, this presidential fitness test, and we're supposed to take this test where we're supposed, to, you know, we're supposed to figure out how we're measuring up to the rest of all the other kids in the country, and I couldn't believe it. They sat me down, and I sat on the floor, and then they put this box in front of me, and the ruler started at my toes, and it was supposed to measure how many inches beyond my toes I could get, right? Like, apparently, the standard is supposed to be plus something, all right? I had trouble getting to, like, negative 10, and so my teacher's like, come on, push, you can lean farther into it. And all I'm thinking is, stretching is a painful, painful experience. And yet it's part of the way that God calls us to live. And yeah, there's stretching physically, but there's the ways that God seems to stretch us in other realms of life, right? I mean, as I think about the ways God has stretched me, I, I think about a couple things. One, just being a pastor. I mean, it's, it's a challenging job from time to time. It's, it freaks me out to get up here and think that I, God has given me something that might be helpful to you in your faith, right? But as I think about the other ways that God has stretched me, being a parent is one of them. Have you seen my kids, right? Right? Being a parent, it stretched me in so many ways. And here's the thing. The box that I was holding as I started a parent, and keep in mind, I majored in, in family social work 
uh, in college. So I studied families. I studied relationships. I actually took a class called parenting, right? I read these books that friends had loaned to us. By the time my kids were, were first coming, uh, coming around and born, I thought I had it all figured out, right? I had this nice, neat box. And it turns out we'd even read this book that said, under no circumstances should you ever get angry in front of your kids, right? Because if they see that, they realize there's a button that they just pushed and they're going to go back and push it again, right? Let me just say that again. Under no circumstances should you ever get angry at your kids. Yeah, my daughter uh, Gwyneth was born in September of 2008 and I'm pretty sure, I don't remember the exact first time, but I can remember one of the first times that I got so angry with her that I just couldn't hold it in anymore and I just lost it with her. Right? This was like, this was like March of the next year. Like, I didn't even make it six months. And the thing was, you guys, is I was yelling at her and I was telling her, and, and there's a point, there's a place for tough love in parenting relationships. Don't, don't hear me wrong. But as I was like, just, just out of my mind, just so frustrated, like, why can't you just pick up your toys when you're done? Or why can't you just go to bed? You know, why can't you just listen I began to realize that the look on her face was telling me that I had just stretched her box as well. The look on her face told me everything I needed to know that I'd never gotten to a point with her before. And so because I was moving and I was telling her, this, showing her this new side of who I was, this box was beginning to stretch. And the same is true for Jesus. I mean, it's just, it's just part of life. I mean, as Jesus goes through the rest of this chapter, we're going to talk about the ways that he's stretching people's understanding of who he is. That is the, the box that they have got, and he's, it's, getting, it's getting bigger. But stretching is just a part of life, right? So my question to you this morning is, where is God stretching you right now? Where's God pulling you in some direction? And again, stretching can feel good, right? It can, you know, a nice little gentle, but where sometimes it just hurts when you get pulled in the wrong direction. Where's God stretching you right now? And maybe it's not even in your view of God. Maybe it's your understanding of the relationships that you have with the people that are closest to you. Maybe it's this idea, is God really the kind of person that's going to come and rescue me whatever battle that I'm fighting right now? Where is God stretching you this morning? And when you answer that question, Jesus is, and you put your line, your word in the blank, what is it that you put down? Because he's stretching all of us. And in fact, as we're going to look at in the rest of this chapter, being stretched is just something that Jesus, I don't know if he's just weird and just loves to do it to us, or if he loves us enough not to leave us the way that we are, but to stretch us and to form us, to shape us and to mold us into the people that we need to be, the people that we've been created to be. So if you have your story Bible, I want you to open again to uh, chapter 25, but we're going to jump to the next page now. Because Jesus is on the move during this chapter again as he has been the last few weeks and he's stretching people left and right. And the thing is that Jesus doesn't just start with random people as he stretches. He starts first with these people just as he has been with Peter. He continues with the people that loved him the most and he starts with his disciples on a little backpacking trip. So I'm on the <clears throat> top of page 354 and his story is it's called The Transfiguration and it starts in Matthew chapter 17 in verse 1. And this story jumps around quite a bit if you're following along in the Abundant Life Bible. It says, After six days Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up into a high mountain by themselves where he trans was transfigured before them. 
And get this, his face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. And suddenly two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in the glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment in Jerusalem. I mean, think about this. You're on this backpacking trip with Jesus, and you've kind of known him as this guy that does miracles from time to time. But this has taken it to a whole other level, isn't it? I mean, Jesus is trying to communicate to them that they have more to learn, that, that they need to stretch, and their box needs to get a little bit bigger, but his face shining like the sun. I mean, his clothes turned white. And he's hanging out with these two guys, these two legendary people, Moses and Elijah. I'm pretty sure if I'm the disciples in this boat, I'd probably look a whole lot like Steve's face did in that car, right? What is going on? Like, I'm just trying to catch my breath. And so Peter is the one that can finally, because again, he's got no shortage of words. He's, he's quick to think, right? And quick to speak. And finally, he just, I just picture him babbling as he gets out of these words and he's just like, Jesus, it, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us, I don't know, let's, let's build you some shelters, right? One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. I mean, He's, he's just rambling, he's going on, he's just trying to say, God, we're so excited to be here, and I love how that next paragraph begins. God wants to take care and get this message across to the disciples so quickly that he doesn't even allow Peter to finish still speaking. For it begins while he was still speaking. A bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him, and when the disciples heard this, it had to have been an experience unlike any other. They fell to the ground terrified. Isn't that exactly what, how this church service is going to end today, right? Don't, I mean, isn't that what you expect when you come to church? You go and you hear a nice sermon, and you just fall to the ground terrified. I mean, no, this is, this is a whole different experience. And yet Jesus comes to them, and he touches them, comforting them. And he says, get up. And do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. And it's hard with, with words to put that story into a place where we can fully comprehend what it was like. But it had to have been a mind-blowing experience. I mean, these disciples, they don't even have a box anymore. They were holding this box that contained this idea of who they thought God was. And it just exploded in their, in their faces, right? But it exploded because Jesus is trying to teach them something new about who he is. And by the end of this experience, they walk away with two things. One, they just heard God's voice. And what did it say? It said, Jesus is God's son. He's not just some nice guy that happens to do a miracle every once in a while, right? He's not just some random prophet. This is God's son. And the second thing they figured out is notice who goes up and meets on the mountain, but notice who comes down, right? You're meeting Moses and Elijah on top of this mountain. And if we think about the Old Testament, I mean, God has launched a series of rescue plans, things to help his people. And you've got two. There are the, the law, which was given by Moses, and you've got the prophets, the people that God loved <clears throat> enough to send, us, send them to us because he loves us so much to bring us back, to tell us the truth. And yet they disappear on the mountain. And so it's almost like God is saying, like Jesus wants his disciples to know there is no plan B, Right? What I'm doing here with you, it's going to fulfill all that those guys in the past, it's going to fulfill all that they hope for. Again, Jesus is stretching their box. And it's a process that continues on the very next page as they begin to go through 
and see that they, Jesus decides he's going to go to this festival, the festival of tabernacles. And Jesus kind of hangs back in the crowd because he's playing it cool, right? But Jesus, I mean, he's such a smart guy. He, he knows that he's pushing buttons and he knows that he's working towards this end. So he hangs back and he kind of just sees what's going on and he steps in, he finds the buttons that he can push and then he begins to teach. And as he begins to teach, the Jews there were so amazed with his teaching that they asked, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? And he begins to make these claims when they say, well, who are you? Aren't you this guy from Nazareth, right? Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. He says, I'm not here on my own authority, but the authority of him who sent me. And he goes on, and he just keeps making these statements that just say, I'm not just some good teacher, but I am the Son of God. He says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. For whoever believes in me, rivers of living water will flow from them. And he's talking about the Holy Spirit and the things that are to come. And on hearing these words, some of the people said, surely this man is a prophet. But there was another group who believed. And it, and it talks about, as it goes on, that because of Jesus... These people were divided. They're continuing to wrestle with this question. Just like Steve in the Camaro at the beginning of the, the sermon. Who is this guy? Right? Everybody's got their different answer. And Jesus keeps going around and he's pushing. And he's pushing and he's trying to figure out what's going on. And eventually as, as this continues to build and build and build, we finally come to the battle royale. Right? Because as Jesus, is, he's... he's testing these boundaries as he's asking people to stretch their boxes further and further. I mean, the thing about cardboard is it can only stretch so far before it just rips, right? And finally, we come to this scene uh, where, where it does rip, where the Pharisees have had enough because something has to give as Jesus is around. And, and the thing is, we have to find this in our own life. As we continue to wrestle with this question, who is Jesus? Eventually, you come to this point where something has to give. And for the Pharisees, it was their patience with this rabbi walking around. So Jesus walks up and he's, he's surrounded by all these people. He's in the crowd and he makes this claim. And it's up here, if you go to the next slide, he's got it on, it's up here on the screen. And let's read this together. This is the claim that Jesus comes to the Pharisees, the teachers of the religious law, and he makes. Let's read this together. I'm telling you the truth, Jesus replied. Before Abraham was born, I am. So as we read this, we think, okay, Jesus, did you need to go back to elementary school? Did you not learn how to speak properly? What do you mean, I am? That sentence doesn't make any, any sense, right? It just doesn't work until we begin to understand that there's more to the story. In fact, if you look at, he's referencing the call of Moses back in, Isaiah, or, uh, back in Exodus chapter 3. And as Moses, like all good leaders, he's questioning. He's questioning God because God has said, I want you as, as Moses is running away from God, God's going after him. He's saying, I want you to come back and I want you to rescue my people. And Moses, like any good Christian leader, any of us, right? When God calls us to do something, uh, he says, well, no, I, I can't do that, right? And he starts going through his excuses. And finally, he's run out of every excuse. And he's like, well, what's your name? Like if people ask me, who am I going to say he sent me? And this is what God says. God says to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. And so because this is such a significant moment in the Old Testament, this name of God, the I am. Everybody say, I am. It's so holy. It's so sacred to them that they don't even speak it out loud. 
right? I mean, imagine what's so precious to you that you never, you never go out and play with it, right? I mean, you never pull it out of its box. Those, those things that we have that are so precious to us that we do everything we can to protect. They don't, they don't want to misuse God's name so much that they never speak it. And then here is this rabbi that shows up and just starts spouting this off, not just using the name, but he says, I am that guy. I mean, this drives him crazy. And we could go through this story, and I could read this to you, but I figured it'd be a lot better to watch on the big screen. Don't you guys agree? So let's take a look. As Jesus continues pushing these boundaries, let's see what happens as he stretches the Pharisee's box until it cannot stretch anymore. When he tells a lie, he is only doing what is natural to him. Because he is a liar and the father of all lies. But I tell the truth. And that is why you do not believe me. Which one of you can prove that I am guilty of sin? If I tell the truth, then why do you not believe me? He who comes from God listens to God's words. You, however, are not from God. And that is why you will not listen. Were we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon in you? I have no demon. I honor my father, but you dishonor me. I am not seeking honor for myself, but there is one who is seeking it and who judges in my favor. I am telling you the truth. Whoever obeys my teaching will never die. Now we know for sure that you have a demon. Abraham died and the prophets died. Yet you say that whoever obeys your teaching will never die. Our father Abraham died. You do not claim to be greater than Abraham, do you? And the prophets also died. Who do you think you are? If I were to honor myself, that honor would be worth nothing. The one who honors me is my father, the very one you say is your God. You have never known him, but I know If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a lie like you, but I do know him, and I obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he was to see the time of my coming. He saw it and was glad. You are not even 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham. (laughs) I am telling you the truth. Before Abraham was born, I am. Then they picked up stones to throw at him. And they picked up stones to throw at him. Not because he was some nice guy or some religious teacher that just had interesting and smart things to say, but because he took things to the next level, because he used God's name, not just publicly, but he used God's name to say that that's who he was. And we know that they got his message loud and clear based on the response, right? I mean, they picked up stones and they're ready to kill him. I mean, Jesus has clearly made this statement crystal clear to the people around him. He started with his disciples and he goes to the crowds And finally, he goes to the religious teachers and he just says this. He says, I am the son of God. 
And as he continues on and he drives this point home as he ruins yet another funeral for his friend Lazarus, right? And not, it's different than the time with the girl that we talked about last week, the girl they thought, most people thought was sleeping. I mean, he waits days before he gets to Lazarus. I mean, they even say, it just, it smells really bad in there, Jesus. Why do you even want to go into that tomb? And yet he brings him back to life. He talks about that, that he is the son of God. As he makes this point, there are many who believe, and yet there are many who don't. Which brings us back to the original question that we started with this morning, that as Jesus poses to his disciples. I think Jesus is asking all of us this morning, who do you say that I am? In other words, what is it that you have in your box? And does your box need to be stretched? That's a tough question, and we need to take some time to answer it. But eventually, all of us have to answer. And in his book, uh, Mere Christianity, Christian author C.S. Lewis, he makes this very point, and he reminds us that we all eventually come to a point in our lives where we have to answer this question, right? We can put it off for years. But at some point, we probably have to answer the question, who is Jesus? And we have some options. But the one option we do not have is that he was just a nice guy. So this is what Lewis says. He says, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. I mean, you can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and you can call him Lord and you can call him God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. In fact, he did not intend to. I mean, as people have wrestled with this question for centuries, who is Jesus? There's only a few, a few answers that really, that all the threads kind of boil down to. And I've got it up here on the screen. I mean, Jesus at the top, he's making this claim. He says, I am God. And really there's four answers that we can come to. At one point, we can think that he's a legend. Maybe Jesus was a lunatic. Maybe he was a liar. Maybe he was a Lord. And so as you begin to kind of walk through this, you you can figure it out and you can begin to realize the decisions that we have to make as we make our decision. I mean, to start, let's start with the legend. Is, Is Jesus a legend? Well, you have to ask, did he make the claim that he was God or not? Is it just a fairy tale? Historically, I mean, everything tells us that what happened in the scriptures actually happened when it came to Jesus' testimony and the the things that the gospel uh, writers have recorded. So I would say that he did make the claim, which eliminates that role of legend altogether. So let's assume that he did make the claim. Is he a lunatic, right? Let's assume that it's a false claim. And let's assume that he didn't know it was false. Well, then that would make him a lunatic. Was he crazy? I find it hard to believe that so many people were attracted to Jesus and followed him for so long if he wasn't, if he wasn't a lunatic. But then there's the other thing. Maybe it was false and maybe he knew it was false. Maybe Jesus was a liar. It's a, it's a valid answer to the question for us to concern ourselves with today. Did he know it was false? And I would say, where is his body? Right? If it was false, if Jesus was just a man, what proof do we have? I don't know. But maybe it's true. Maybe we believe that Jesus did make this claim. Maybe we did believe that it's true. If it's true, then it changes everything. 
as we're about to find out in the next couple weeks, is we follow Jesus on this journey as he makes it his way towards the cross and to the resurrection. But we've got to ask the question, is he a legend? Is he a lunatic? I mean, is he a liar? Or is he Lord? And if he is Lord, then we're called to surrender our lives to him, to trust him as only God deserves our trust. And I've got to tell you, this week as I was looking at this and I was thinking about all of this, you know, this idea of God stretching our boxes and, and how that's just a reality of part of our life, I began to think about this last passage that's included in this chapter where Jesus begins to talk about children, where he begins to talk about kids. Because it makes me think about my own kids. Right? But he has this interesting thing to say, and, and it's on page 361, and it's from Mark chapter 10. I mean, as Jesus is on this move, right? He's got all of these people coming to him and doing all these amazing things, it just makes absolute sense that not only would families come, not only would adults come, but children would be brought to him as well. And that's exactly what it says. It says, people were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. And when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such of these. And like I said, as I was reading this, this passage this week, it just got me thinking about my own kids. And yeah, they drive me crazy. And yeah, they sure have stretched my box. And I've uh, probably stretched theirs a little bit. But, but what really stuck out to me was just the posture of their heart. Right? It's amazing to me how every time, eventually, every time as I have asked my kids to open their box just a little wider, they do it, right? And there's countless examples of that, and I could, I could tell a lot of stories, but I'll tell you the best example that I can think of is almost any time I play with my kids, right? Especially when we go to the park and we play at the playground, especially when it involves climbing up things and being able to jump off. That's probably our favorite recreational activity in the household, at least myself and and uh, our little ones is, is just jumping off stuff. And my wife kind of freaks out about it because she's pretty sure I'm going to raise our kids to be base jumpers, skydivers, or, you know, bungee jumpers or something. All right? They're going to be adrenaline junkies. And, and I just think about this time where we went not too long ago to a park, and, and it was this really cool, cool playground because it had these four kind of different levels to it. And most people look at that and they think, hey, let's go up there and get a better view. I looked at it and thought, hey, I wonder how much my kids will trust me, right? So we go to the first one, and it's my oldest daughter is the one that's really active, and, and so it's kind of about eye height, and I say, hey, just jump into my arms. Can you do that? And she's like, yeah, no problem. I can do that, right? Just jumps, and I catch her, and, it, and it's great. And we move to the next one, and it's a little bit higher, and she jumps. And we move to the next one, and, and, and she's getting a little bit higher, and, and she, she jumps. And finally, we come to this last one. It's like the top of the playground, and it's got one of those fireman poles that go down, right? Because there's no way you'd ever just jump off of this thing, right? I mean, we're talking like four feet above my head now is where my daughter's feet are. And I say, Gwyneth, do you trust me? And she goes, I mean, you could tell I was stretching her box a little bit. She's like, I, I don't know, you know. But she thought about it for about one second, and then she did it. And as I was thinking about that story, it just made me think, what, what was it? about me standing there holding my arms out that, that compelled her to jump probably a distance that was as tall as she was, a park that she'd never been to before. And I began to realize 
it's because they were my arms. Because I had been there all along for her, feeding her and giving her clothes and taking care of her when she falls and she scrapes her knees. And it just, it just made me think about this statement that Jesus says as he's talking about his disciples, he's talking about his kingdom. Maybe it's what we need to, the posture we need to take on as we think about this question, who is Jesus? Jesus says, truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And sometimes I wonder if we just don't make faith too complicated. You know, maybe God just wants us to, to jump into his arms and to let him catch us and then, then we believe and then everything else follows from that. So let's stand together. I want to pray and I want to ask God to help us to trust him as, we, as he stretches our ideas and our understanding even in these next few weeks as we lead up to Easter about who he is. God, we say thank you to you this morning. God, that you are our Lord and our King. God, that we are creatures that you have created. And God, we thank you that you love us so much that you don't just leave us the way that we are, but God, you come to us and and you poke us. You poke the box so we can begin to understand even, God, where the walls of our box are and we can understand, God, how you're trying to help us grow and take, take our relationship with you even deeper. God, we thank you for the fact that you love us no matter what. And God, that we get to love and serve you as your children. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen.